Welcome to Spiritual Gold, the teaching ministry of Dr. Richard L. Strauss. I'm Dr. Mark Strauss, and these podcasts represent the faithful exposition of God's Word by my father through his 21-year ministry at Emmanuel Faith Community Church. Our prayer is that through these messages, you would be encouraged and equipped in your walk with the Lord. Jesus said, By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, by the love that you have one for another. He said, The world's going to know that the Father has sent the Son because you are one. Unity among God's people, harmony among believers, is absolutely essential. It isn't optional, folks. It's indispensable. If we want the world to be impacted by the gospel of Jesus Christ, then the church of Jesus Christ that proclaims that gospel must present to the world a picture of unity and oneness and love. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 16, is teaching us how to enjoy that love in the body of Christ and in the local church. We saw in the first three chapters of Ephesians the calling of the church. We see in chapters 4, 5, and 6 the conduct of the church. And the first thing we learn is that it is to be a conduct of unity, a conduct of concord. In verses 1 to 6, we heard Paul's plea for unity. I beseech you, I beg of you, to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. In verses 7 to 11, we saw God's provision for unity in the church. It is his gift of, or his provision of spiritual gifts in verse 7, and then his provision of gifted men in verse 11. And these two together form the substance of God's provision to produce unity within the church of Jesus Christ. But how does it operate? How does it work? How can these provisions fulfill the plea and produce unity in the church of Christ? Verse 11 says he gave some apostles and some prophets and he gave some to be evangelists and some to be pastor teachers for When you see the word for in Scripture, you know that a purpose usually follows, a reason. We're going to learn the purpose for this provision. Actually, this is not the most common Greek word for for. It's a word that means literally uh, with a view to, with a view toward. Basically, that's the same thing, though. Tells us why God gave us spiritual gifts and gifted men. It is the purpose for God's provision. What is that purpose? We learned that apostles, in a technical sense, are no longer in operation. Prophets, in a technical sense, are no longer around. Evangelists are itinerant in their ministry. Those on the local scene are pastor-teachers, whom we learned uh, last week are basically the same New Testament office uh, as, as elders. What are they for? Why did God give them? And why did God give every believer spiritual gifts? For, it says, the equipping, literally, the equipping of the saints. King James Version says perfecting. But that word is a little confusing to us. The word basically means to equip, to outfit, to complete for a job, to to make one fit, to serve, to fully train for a specific uh, 
activity or venture, to put in a proper condition to do a job that needs to be done, to equip. That's the best word I know to communicate the Greek word. It is to equip the saints. God gave pastor teachers to equip the saints, to train them through instruction in the word and through discipline in order to bring them to the place where they can do the job God wants them to do, the equipping of the saints. Now it says, the basic role of pastor teachers, it says right here in Ephesians 4, 11 and 12, it says, the basic role of pastor teachers is to equip the saints. Now that is not what most people think the basic role of pastor teacher is. Through the centuries, a very strange image of a pastor teacher has evolved. We call him today in many cases the minister. And he is the one who is paid to do the work of the ministry. He's the professional. He's the one who does it all. He's the one who not only preaches the message, but does all the counseling and does all the visiting and does all the marrying and does all the burying and does all the administration and oversees the entire ministry of the church. The pastor teachers are the ministers in common parlance today. But that isn't what God said the pastor teachers for. It says his primary task is to equip the saints, not do the 1,001 other things that most pastor teachers are called on to do. The primary job of the pastor teacher is not necessarily to fill the pews or to increase the budget or to win Sunday school contests or to do many of the other things that many people think pastor teachers are supposed to do today. The primary role of a pastor teacher is to equip the saints. The primary role of a pastor teacher is not to sit around and make policy decisions. It is to equip the saints. God gave pastor teachers to equip the saints. That's what God says in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. That's a very important concept. It is the job of the leadership of the church, the spiritual leaders of the church, the elders and the pastors who are the pastor teachers, to help God's people find their spiritual gifts, discover them, develop them, and then use them in the service of Jesus Christ. It's the job of pastor teachers to train God's people. After all, there's a job to be done. Whenever there's a job to be done, we don't usually just say, well, now you go do that job. We usually train people to do a job. When you work, don't they usually train people to do a job? I mean, there are lots of little or larger companies around this area. Let me just choose one. Let's just choose NCR, all right? That's a big building down on the hill there as you ride through Rancho Bernardo. Everybody sees it and we're familiar with it. And Let's say NCR has a job to do. They don't normally hire a man and say, all right, now you're on the payroll, you go do the job. They usually send him to a school. They teach him how they operate, how the, their company functions, who's responsible to who. They may send him to seminars or classes to, to school him in the particular job he's going to do, and then they send him into a room, and they usually put him under somebody's supervision who knows how to do the job, and he begins to do it, and somebody else looks on and examines and evaluates and corrects and helps, and then finally he becomes equipped and trained to do the job on his own. That's the equipping of employees to do a job. 
Now, the local church has a job to do. Why should we be any less efficient and effective and organized in doing that job than the world is in doing the jobs they have to do? We've got the most important job on the face of the earth. And the best way to get that job done is God's way. It is for the leadership of the local church to be engaged in an equipping ministry. But why? Why are we supposed to equip the saints? It says pastor teachers were given for the equipping of the saints. And most Greek commentaries say it means this. Some translations concur. For their work of ministering. You see, in our King James translation, when we get the idea there's two purposes. For the equipping of the saints and for the work of the ministry. That's not basically what it means. God gives spiritual gifts and gifted men to equip the saints for their work of ministering. All the saints are to be involved in the work of the ministry. We learn back in chapter 4 and verse 7 that every child of God is gifted in some way. We saw that same truth repeated in 1 Corinthians 12, 7 and 1 Peter 4, 10. Every child of God is gifted. Now, every child of God is to be a functioning member of the body of Christ, exercising his spiritual gifts of the glory of God, involved in the work of the ministry, ministering, as Peter said in 1 Peter 4.10, one to another. We are to be serving one another, as we saw this morning in that passage or in that, that study of pride, that, which is an unwillingness to serve one another. We are to be... Well, Peter said it like it says, every man or every person has received a gift, even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Minister your gifts to one another. I want to ask you a question right now. You don't need to answer out loud, but you answer in your own heart, in your own mind. What am I doing to minister to other believers in the body of Christ? Can you think of anything? What am I doing now, you're asking that. Don't, don't, please don't ask what I'm doing, all right? That's my business before God. You answer it in your own heart. Put it in the first person. What am I doing to equip believers for their work? Or to what am I doing to minister to other believers and serve other believers? We are to minister one to another. Now, again, to go back to that common misconception of the ministry, we have the idea that we pay professionals to do all these things. They're supposed to do all the ministering. And, and that, that idea is so ingrained in our minds that sometimes if the pastors don't do what we think they ought to do, we get upset with them. We get critical of them. If we don't get a personal call during our time of illness or bereavement, we, we get hurt because we don't feel like we've been ministered to officially. Maybe other members of the body have ministered to us, but we don't feel like it's really been uh, an official ministry because one of the pastoral staff or one of the elders hasn't come by to, to uh, minister to us in our time of need. Uh, folks, I, I have to say to you, and I, I you know, I, this may sound like we're trying to get out of work, but we're not trying to get out of work, believe me. God's called us to the ministry, and we're here to serve just as everybody else is here to serve. But I did a little investigating today. The secretary has just printed up a brand new mailing list. So I asked Mary Bell if she would. If she would count the families on that mailing list, she always does that, but she hadn't done it uh, yet because it just came out last week and she hadn't had a chance. And poor Maryville had to spend this afternoon counting families on that mailing list. She did that for me and I'm grateful. But we have approximately 2,800 families 
where some members of that family are actively involved in some ministry of this church on that mailing list. Now, we have nearly 3,200 counting inactive members, folks who have moved away who still want to be affiliated with our church, college kids away at school, missionary families, and so on. But I'm talking about now families who live in the area who are involved in some activity of this church, 2,800 families. Joe Silvey tells me, and he's the one who has these kinds of statistics, that the average family in the United States in the last, the last estimate was 2.8 members per family. Now, I multiplied 2,800 by 2.8, and I got 7,640 people whose lives we are touching through the ministry of this church. Now, I don't say that boastfully. I say that as an awesome and scary responsibility. We are touching the lives and endeavoring to minister to the spiritual needs of somewhere in the vicinity of 7,000 people. And I would like to suggest to you, dear folks, eight pastors can't do that effectively. Eight pastors plus nine elders can't do that effectively. Eight pastors and nine elders can't even begin to do that effectively. The only way we can minister to the spiritual needs of God's people is if we take Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12 seriously and begin to put it into action in this church. That is, if the leadership of this church has as its primary role to equip the saints for their work of ministering. And then the job shall begin to get done. And people's spiritual needs shall begin to be ministered to. And hurting people shall find caring people who are willing to love them and listen to them and help them. And quite frankly, I'm of the opinion that we could be helping each other as effectively, in most cases, as we, the professional pastoral staff, can help. Most of the times all we do is lend a listening, caring ear. We have some people helper classes going on periodically around here that will help you become a more effective people helper if you're really interested in doing that exercising your spiritual gifts to minister one to another for the glory of God. It's the only possible way people's spiritual needs can ever be ministered to in a church like ours. But it's, it's nothing to be ashamed of, folks. We don't have to apologize for that because it is God's way. It's God's way and we must begin to operate God's way if we ever hope to do the job anywhere near effectively. Now, where should we be exercising our spiritual gifts? Where should this activity be directed? Paul believed in the body of Christ. In fact, the whole book of Ephesians is about the body of Christ. But it was also, this book of Ephesians was directed to a local church. Paul wrote this to the church at Ephesus. Visible composed of living people meeting together to, to learn and worship and, and be equipped to serve a local church. We have, a, we have seen in our day and age a proliferation of what we call parachurch ministries. Many of them are fine organizations doing very important jobs and in many cases very effectively. And many of our independent fundamental churches are the primary means of supporting these organizations. And I'm not against that. I'm not knocking it. But I will say this. God never threw over the local church. And were the local church doing its job as God wants it to be done, we probably wouldn't need a fraction of these parachurch organizations. Maybe we wouldn't need any of them. 
And it's my opinion that God's people ought to be given their primary time in the exercise of their gifts through, in and through the ministry of a local church. And that means if this is the church you've chosen to attend, where you are fed and where you are equipped, then you should be ministering. I'm not saying you shouldn't be ministering through any parachurch organization, but you ought to be exercising your gifts to some degree through the ministry of this local church. I read a story about a pastor who was visited by an independent missionary. The pastor asked him, uh, what, what church do you represent? Well, he says, I represent the invisible church, the universal church, the body of Christ. Oh, he said, well, to what church do you minister? He said, well, I minister to the invisible church. He said, fine, here's some invisible money to help you minister to the invisible <laughs> church. <laughs> God wants us to minister to the visible church, folks, the local church primarily. And if God's called you here, you need to be exercising your gift of ministering to other believers in this local church. How are believers equipped to do the work of the ministry? Hold your place in Ephesians. I'd like you to turn over, please, to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Verse 16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be, see that next word, folks? That's the same basic word, the root of the word from which that equipping back in Ephesians 4.12 comes. For the equipping, that the man of God may be equipped, thoroughly furnished. And that's another word from the same root, meaning with an intensive prefix on it. Thoroughly equipped. That the man of God may be complete, capable, proficient, able to meet all demands, fully equipped, thoroughly furnished and completed for every good work. How does a believer get equipped to do the work God wants him to do through the word of God. All scripture is inspired of God and profitable that the man of God may be equipped. It's the primary task of pastor teachers to communicate the word of God because that is the thing that equips God's people to minister to one another. And that's what brings harmony in the body. And the result is, go back to Ephesians 4.12, for the equipping of the saints for their work of the ministry unto the edifying of the body of Christ. The building up. The word edifying simply means building up. We want to build up the body at Emmanuel faith. We want it to be strong. We want it to grow, not only numerically, but spiritually. Grow strong in the Lord. We want this to be a vital, stable, strong, local testimony. We want it to be built up. How can it be built up? By pastor teachers equipping the saints for their work of ministry. That brings us to the building up of the body of Christ. It's amazing to peruse a Christian bookstore and see the number of books written on how to build a great church. Everybody who has a growing church writes a book on how they did it. It's interesting to see all the philosophies of how to build a church. Also, after you write the book, then you start having pastor seminars and inviting pastors from all over the country to come into your church so you can tell them how to do it. 
And pastors from little churches all over the country are running to seminars and coming home with notebooks filled with notes on how to build a great church. And they try to put some of those things into action and they fall flat on their faces over and over again. It's happening all over the country today. Friend, God wrote the best book ever written on how to build a church. He gave the greatest seminar that's ever been given on how to build a great church. It's recognizing that all God's people are gifted and that God gives pastor teachers to help them discover their gift and develop their gift and use their gift and train them in the Word of God so that they may be equipped to minister to one another. That's what brings the building up of the body of Christ and the local expressions of the body of Christ. Local churches like ours. This is the way it's done. We don't need to write any books. They've already been written right here. The book of Ephesians. It's been around for nearly 2,000 years. We don't have to have any pastor seminars to tell people how to do it. It's right here in the Word of God. God's divinely ordained formula for building a strong church. Equipping the saints for their work of ministering to the building up of the body of Christ. People are going to get saved because they're going to realize, hey, those folks really love one another. Hey, they're really on fire. They're really happy. And we'll be out talking about the Lord and what the Lord's doing in our lives. And then they'll come in and they'll come to know Christ. Probably come to know Christ out there and then come in. That's normally the way it works, at least in the New Testament it does. And then they'll begin to get equipped so that they can get involved in the work of the ministry and joyfully serving Jesus Christ. And the body just keeps building up, growing stronger numerically and spiritually when we do God's work in God's way. Well, that's the formula. I want you to look at the results, please. We already saw one result, the building up of the body. But there's more. There's an end in view. It's a fourfold end in view. If we put it down in its fourfold outline, it would go like this. Unity, maturity, Christ-likeness, and doctrinal stability. Got those notes in your Bible? Those four things, right? Here they are. Unity, maturity, Christ-likeness, and doctrinal stability. They're still there. The same result is there. It says, So we all come, verse 13, in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Unity of the faith and knowledge of the Son of God. Unity. Unity. The, word idea, the idea of the word is, is to have agreement, harmony. Have the same opinion about things. Well, that doesn't mean we never disagree. But when we disagree, we pray about it, we go to the Word, we discuss it in love, and we come to a meeting of the mind so that we end up agreeing. That's the way God's work is supposed to operate. Not so that we end up with a couple of folks saying, well, I guess that's all right, that's the way we're going to do it, but I'll never agree to that. No, no. Go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. This is the kind of unity Paul's talking about. 1 Corinthians 1.10 Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. The word judgment means opinion. Well, that's about as, as much agreement as I can imagine a person ever describing. It says we're that have no divisions, be perfectly joined together with the same mind, think the same thing, even think the same things, and with the same opinion on things. 
Well, I know there are always going to be little things we disagree on, but they should never keep us apart, never cause hard feeling between us, never hinder the ministry of Jesus Christ. And anything that counts in the work of the ministry, we ought to be able to agree on. Because the Spirit of God only has one mind in these things. So we find the mind of the Spirit, we shall agree. And we'll all be working together, doing the job with teamwork, and enjoying what Paul pleaded for in the first three verses. The unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now that's going to happen when everybody's involved, doing their job. I know some of you don't care anything about football and others of you are rabid football fans. I know that there are some ladies who think that's the game where everybody lines up facing each other and they all jump in a pile in the middle of the field. And that's all they can see when they, when they watch their husbands watching football. But there are others who realize that the game has some, some very fine and finesse points about it. And one of the important things is every player is supposed to play his position. You don't play your position, you're in trouble. Eleven men on each side, and the defense has to stop the other team from moving the ball, and the only way they can do it is if every man plays his position. You see, if, if the defensive end tries to be the middle linebacker, then the fellows are going to run around that end, and they're going to score a touchdown. So the, the defensive end has to stay out there on the end and make sure they don't go around that end. He has to stay in his position and play it. And then there's unity and teamwork, and the job gets done, you see. Of course, there's some fellas sitting on a bench, usually, in a football game. And you know, if there's a critical member of a team, it's usually the guy sitting on the bench. Because he's saying, I ought to be in there. And the coach doesn't realize how much talent's being wasted here. And if he only knew the facts, he'd put me in, you know. So he's going to get critical of the coach. And he's going to be critical of the other players. He's going to nitpick and grouch about and grumble and, and complain. And he's going to cause division, you see. But in God's game... Everybody's in the game. They're not supposed to be any bench warmers. Everybody's supposed to be in the game playing his position and then nobody's grumbling at anybody else. Nobody's griping and complaining at other people. Criticizing them for their, the fact that they're not doing the job the way they ought to be doing it. Everybody's interested in doing his own job. And there's going to be unity, you see. Teamwork and the job's going to get done. Not only will we have unity and faith and knowledge of the Son of God, but we're going to come to the perfect man. Now, that's a different word from the perfect of verse 12. That word means full-grown, mature, grown up in the Lord. Not, no more childishness. People getting their feelings hurt, finding fault. They're going to be full-grown. They're going to come to completeness in Jesus Christ. Paul had quite a bit to say about this over in Colossians. Turn to Colossians chapter 1, verse 28. Here's another great passage that tells us really what our philosophy of the ministry ought to be. It's talking about Jesus Christ in Colossians 1.28, whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. The goal of this church and its leadership ought to be to present every man mature in Jesus Christ. Now I want to show you something about this maturity, how it operates in Colossians 3.14. It says, And above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfectness, or the bond of maturity. Maturity is the oil. Well, it's the link that holds the body together and the oil that makes it run smoothly. 
mature believers doing the work of the ministry, working together in love, helps us get the job done. Love is like the oil in an automobile. You let your car run out of oil, you're not going to have a smoothly running engine, you're going to have a piece of junk. That's what you're going to have. And that's what's happened in many churches because the love has been missing. Of course, we measure that love by those four things Paul taught us back in verse 2 of Ephesians 4, remember? Lowliness. That's the willingness to be treated as if you were less important than everybody else. Meekness. That's a refusal to demand our own way. Long-suffering. That's a lack of irritation and annoyance and temper when people oppose us or wrong us. And forbearance, that's accepting one another lovingly and willingly. That's the love that makes it all work. We're going to be grown up in the Lord, mature in His love. When we view the local church's ministry as God views it, spiritual gifts and gifted men for the equipping of the saints for their work of ministry, to the building up of the body of Christ, will come to, to unity and to maturity and finally to Christ, not finally, but thirdly, to Christ-likeness. You see it? In verse 13, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. He's the goal. Our aim is to grow up into Him, to be like Him. We'll never fully attain it in this life. Not till Jesus comes and we see Him, then we shall be like Him. But we're to be growing toward that goal, the measure of the stature of the fullness of of Jesus Christ. And we'll be growing to that goal when we do God's work in God's way. And finally, there will be doctrinal stability. Verses 14 to 16. That we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness by which they lie in wait to deceive. No, no. But speaking the truth in love will grow up into him in all things, who is the head, even Christ. We won't be children anymore. Children are easily deceived. You can tell a little child almost anything and he'll believe you. I don't think it's right to do that, and some parents do it, but it, it's not right. Yet, yet it's possible to do it. We can deceive little children. There are lots of little children in the faith who are easily deceived. They can't recognize truth from error. They drift around from church to church, they're not able to, to understand the truth when they hear it or recognize false doctrine when they hear it. Sometimes they even get attracted to the cults that deny the deity of Jesus Christ and the basic doctrines, fundamentals of the faith and the scripture. The cults feed off of church members. They don't go out and win unbelievers. They feed off of church members who are unschooled and untaught, who are children in their faith. Walter Martin, who's somewhat of an expert in the cult, says that it's possible for a Jehovah's Witness to take the average Christian of 20 years apart in 30 minutes or less. Because churches, by and large, have not been doing God's work in God's way. Equipping the saints with the Word, helping them develop, discover, develop, and use their spiritual gifts so they can be involved in the ministry, working together, ministering to one another. Churches aren't doing that. Consequently, Believers, in many cases, are still children, tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine. The idea is like a boat being swept in the 
storm-tossed ocean from one side to another. But it's not helter-skelter and meaningless. It's designed craftily by Satan. The cunning craftiness by which they lie in wait to deceive, you see. He knows exactly what he's doing. And he's deceived a lot of Christians. They don't know how to recognize the truth because they have not been involved in a ministry where God's work is done in God's way. But rather than being tossed to and fro by false doctrine, we'll be able to speak the truth. And I think in its context, that's talking about the truth of Scripture. I think there are many applications of this verse, some great applications to the whole subject of communication between believers, subject I'd like to explore someday if I can ever get around to it. I was going to do that this fall, and then I got involved in studying pride, and I got waylaid. But someday I want to talk about communication in the Scripture, and this verse is relevant. But in its context, it's talking about the truth of Scripture. We'll know the truth, and yet we'll be able to speak it in love, not in a condemning, rejecting way, not holding people at arm's length, not stomping on the sinner as well as rejecting his sin. No, no. We'll be able to do it in love. Speaking the truth in love will grow up into him. In all things, who is the head, even Jesus Christ. We've got a flashback to Christ's likeness there again, along with the doctrinal stability. God's people being taught and trained, actively involved in ministering to one another, will bring about doctrinal stability. You see, you'll be studying your Bible. You'll be learning what the Word says. You'll be really interested in listening to what the Bible says when it's taught in classes and from the pulpit because you'll be witnessing to people and you want to have the answers to your questions and you'll be teaching a class of your own and, and you want to know what others have taught on this subject and you'll begin to grow up in doctrine and you get involved doing God's work in God's way. Verse 16 is kind of a summary statement of the whole passage. And it's a very difficult verse when you just look at it at first sight from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working and the measure of every part maketh increase of the body under the edifying of itself in love. Got that? All right, let's close. <laughs> Maybe I better say just a word about that. From whom? Who's that? It's Christ. We just talked about Christ, who is the head. See, in verse 15, Christ. From whom? Whatever happens in verse 16, it all comes from Christ. Don't forget that. He's the one who gives the spiritual gifts and gifted men to get this whole thing operating. It all comes from Him. From whom? The whole body. That's the subject of the verse. We're talking about the body. Now, what happens to the body? To find out what happens to the body, you have to go all the way down to the end of the verse. Now, just forget about all those, those intervening words there for a minute to get the idea of the verse. From Christ, the whole body... Skip all the way down to makes increase. See it? That's the verb. Every sentence has to have a subject and a predicate. And here's the verb of the predicate. Make it increase of itself unto the edifying or building up of itself in love. From Christ, we get what we need so the body can be built up in love. That's what the verse says. And the intervening words tell us how it all works. Which is what we've been talking about since we started this message. From whom the whole body fitly, fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplies. The whole body is joined together. Every member is joined together in one unified whole. That's the truth we saw back in Ephesians 2. Uh, back in Ephesians 4 and verse 4. There is one body. 
The bodies joined together, joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth. Every member of the body's got something to contribute. That's what we learned back in verse 7 of the chapter. It's a summary statement, you see. There's one body, it's joined together. Every member of the body, that's you and me, all of us together, every single one, has something to contribute by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part. Everybody's using what they have to contribute. Everybody's working at what they have to do. Everybody's playing his position, you see. That's so simple. It's not, it's not difficult at all. The whole body's joined together in one unified whole. Every part has something to contribute. And every part is contributing what it's supposed to contribute. And what's the result? The result is the body increases unto the building up of itself. And it does it in the realm of love. Isn't that what we want? Don't we want our church to be built up? Grow strong? Not just numerically. But I mean strong. Spiritually. And that's going to inevitably involve people coming to know Christ. I mean, you just can't avoid that when a church is strong spiritually. But that's what we're talking about. And don't we want to be built up in love? Love. That's caring for one another. That's speaking to one another graciously and kindly. That's serving one another. You know, it's easy to to talk about love, not so easy to express it, but love is an action. It's not just talk. Sometimes we can even get critical of people because they don't show us love. <laughs> we, can, we can become ornery over the fact that we don't think there's love, and that's not love. But when we're doing God's work in God's way, discovering, developing, using our spiritual gifts, being equipped in the Word through our own personal study of the Word and through our corporate study of the Word, involved in, in the work of the ministry, then we're going to be built up. And it's all going to happen in love. I repeat, folks, I think that's the greatest passage in the New Testament on how to get the work of the Lord done through the local church. And it's my prayer that we will consider it with, as more and more important and put it high on our priority list as we think ahead and plan in every agency and activity and organization and department of our church, on the pastoral staff and the board of elders and board of deacons and deaconesses, in the choir with the ushers and the greeters and in every ministry of the church we need to be thinking and praying and working toward doing God's work in God's way. And the results are going to be God's blessing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this formula for spiritual strength. Not only in the body at large but in every local expression of the body. And I pray, Father, that you'll give us the grace we need, the intelligence, the motivation, the desire, the insight, the willingness to follow the formula you've given to us so that we can enjoy the blessing you so desire to pour out upon us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message by Dr. Richard L. Strauss. Copyright 2021, Spiritual Gold, Inc. All rights reserved. 
For more on this ministry and for additional resources, be sure to visit spiritualgold.org.